The reading tonight taken from Acts 13 from 1 to 12. But before that, uh, we do a little bit. Chapter 12, verses 25. On page 1107, 1107. Barnabas and Saul sent off. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, and Saul. When they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Cilicia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent to Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimas, the sorcerer, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of kind of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop preventing the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he grew about seeking someone to lead him by the hands. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. This is the word of God. Thanks, Toto. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can read about how you established your church. We pray that you would teach us now as we think about that. 
Please be with me as I speak. Please be with each one of us as we reflect on what you are saying to us. Amen. We are in the middle of a sermon series uh, about the ministry of St. Paul, and we're trying to see what we can learn from that. In the first half of May, we considered uh, Paul's conversion and the immediate aftermath of that. Then two weeks ago, we looked about at the establishment of the church at Antioch and Paul's role in that. And this week, we come to consider the start of what's commonly called Paul's first missionary journey. And I need to set the scene for that. You see, after Paul's conversion, he started preaching more or less immediately. And we might have expected that to continue, but that wasn't God's plan. In fact, Paul headed off to Arabia for about three years. And we don't know what he did there but he came back in due course to Damascus. Unfortunately, uh, his life was uh, at risk there, and he fled to Jerusalem. Uh, There he uh, he met one or two of the apostles briefly, but he still wasn't safe, and so they packed him off back to his hometown, Tarsus. Tarsus was a city just off the southeast coast of modern-day Turkey. And Paul was there for some time before Barnabas uh, came to try and seek him out. Now, Paul had met Barnabas in Jerusalem when he was there, briefly indeed. It was Barnabas who'd introduced him to Peter. Uh, And Barnabas had come to try to persuade Paul to go with him to Antioch to help lead the church there. Antioch was about 150 miles, just a little under, by road southeast of Tarsus. And uh, it was a major city. Uh, In fact, at times, it was the third biggest city in the Roman Empire. It also had a large church, a church that had been founded by Christians from Judea and particularly Jerusalem who had gone there to escape the persecution that followed the stoning of Stephen. Now, we might have regarded that persecution as a disaster, Uh, but God was still in control because the Christians who went to Antioch preached the gospel to Jews and Gentiles alike, and for the first time ever, a church came into being that was genuinely a mixed Jewish, non-Jewish church. Now, not unnaturally, the church in Jerusalem was quite interested in what was going on up in Antioch, and so they sent Barnabas to find out what was going on. Uh, He got there, and he was impressed with what he saw, but he was wise enough to realize that the church lacked leaders, and it needed, in particular, some good teaching. And knowing Paul was, well, if not just down the road, at least not too far away, he went and searched him out and brought him back. And for a year, they taught as leaders of the church at Antioch. After that, the church sent them back to Jerusalem with a gift. Doubtless, while they were there, Barnabas gave a first-hand account of what was happening up in Antioch. But they didn't spend too long there. Uh, They then headed back to Antioch, 
And that's where our reading begins today, with Paul and Barnabas, together with John Mark, returning from Jerusalem to Antioch. Before we look at the detail, though, there's one important point I'd like to draw to your attention, and it's this. Many years had passed since Paul's conversion. If you just read Acts from beginning to end, without paying too much attention to the chronology, you may get the impression that events were really fast-moving and that something dramatic was happening all the time. But if you were to get that impression, it would be misleading. Luke is giving us the edited highlights, as it were. Uh, We don't know the precise date of Paul's conversion, but it was probably sometime between AD 33 and AD 36. The key point, though, is the events in our passage today took place 13 or 14 years later. Luke, the author of Acts, has gone through those 14 years in three and a half chapters of the book. And we need to remember that. I suspect that some of the early Christians were a bit concerned. What was God doing? When was he going to get on with it? Now, from the perspective of 2,000 years later, we can see that God was getting on with it. He'd established the beginnings of the Gentile church. He was just about to spread it all out across the Mediterranean. But I suspect it was quite hard for those Christians to realise that at the time. We need to remember that. We need to remember that God's time horizon is rather different from our time horizon. And we need to avoid the temptation of becoming impatient or feeling that things are seriously wrong because we seem to be living rather ordinary lives. The fact is, for most of the time, so were those Christians in Jerusalem and Antioch, interrupted by persecution as it happens. We need to remember that just because we are not aware of something dramatic happening every minute, that doesn't mean that God is not at work. God was at work then, And he is at work now. All right, so we're 14 years after Paul's conversion, give or take a year. What happened? Let's go back to our reading. It's on page 1107 in the Bibles in the church, if you would like to follow it, though I will be reading all of the uh, bits that are relevant. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Let's just pause there. Three quite small points. First of all, I, I do trust everyone's aware that Saul and Paul are one and the same person. It's commonly thought among Christians, I've discovered, that uh, Saul changed his name to Paul when he became a Christian. That, that isn't actually true. The truth is much more prosaic. Uh, he was a Jew, and his name was Saul. 
but he was also a Roman citizen from a Roman city, and so he had a Roman name as well. Probably had three, actually, they all did. Uh, But one we know is Paulus, hence Paul, uh, which is roughly the same as Saul uh, in, uh, in Latin. So that's Paul. Then did you notice that they returned from Jerusalem with John, also called Mark? That was probably the same Mark as wrote Mark's gospel. Not 100% sure, but it does appear highly likely, and later uh, Christians said that that was indeed the case. And then third, did you notice this chap, Manian? Uh, We don't know anything about him except what is stated here, that he was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Uh, It does cause me to wonder whether the detail of what happened in Herod's court that we find in Mark's gospel and indeed in Luke's gospel was actually given to John Mark there in Antioch when he met Manian, who was... uh, Uh, who inhabited the court. However, that's me speculating, and it's not an important point. What is important is what happened next. Verse 2. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them, to which I have called them. I apologise. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them, and sent them off. Well, at one level, that's easy, isn't it? God spoke and told the church to release and commission Paul and Barnabas for missionary work, and the church obeyed. At that level, it's easy, and we'll return to that. But I suspect a number of you, when you read this passage, and indeed lots of others like it in the Bible, say, well, how did the Holy Spirit speak to them? And I suspect that all of us tend to bring our presuppositions to that, and the presuppositions colour our understanding of what we're reading. And therefore it's really important, when we read a passage like this, that we make sure we read what the Bible actually says and what it doesn't say. So, let's do that now. While they were worshipping, the they, by the way, there is probably the five church leaders. So while they were worshipping and uh, fasting, we're told, the Holy Spirit sought, what, what were they doing? Again, I suspect that most of you here, and by the way, I did this, immediately assumed that when they were worshipping, what they were doing was singing and probably doing much the same as we're doing here this evening. But the word worshipping, the word translated worshipping, actually simply means service. It was a perfectly ordinary Greek word that was used of public service. If I was the mayor, I was involved in what's translated here, worshipping. Well, they didn't have mayors, but you know what I mean. So what it's saying here is that these leaders were serving God. Now, what were they doing? Well, maybe they were simply gathering together in order to work out how to serve the church, a bit like a St. John's Leaders' Council meeting or something like that. Although, actually, it doesn't even say they were meeting uh, in this passage. What it does say is they were fasting. And we know from the Bible and other sources that 
people would fast in order to focus on God and specifically to pray and seek God's will. And it's in that context that we are told the Holy Spirit spoke and told them to set apart uh, Barnabas and Saul. So how did the Holy Spirit uh, speak? Did they hear a voice? Well, it's possible. There are examples of that in the Bible. We came across one in our last series. Uh, oh, it was in the, no, it was in the evening as well. In our Samuel series last year, when God directly spoke to Samuel. Or did someone believe that God had spoken to them and said, I believe God's spoken to us? Well, that is possible. We do have examples of that in the Bible. Or were they talking things through and steadily came to a collective belief that God was guiding them? For example, did they consider that Barnabas and uh, Saul, while they'd been in Jerusalem, were told by the other apostles, the apostles in Jerusalem, that they believed Paul was set apart as the apostle to the Gentiles. Were they reflecting on what that, uh, the significance of that? And then came to the view that God was guiding them. The truth is, it doesn't tell us. We don't know. There are examples of all of those things. If you go on two chapters, you'll see the Council of Jerusalem was an example of that third thing. Everyone deliberated and came to the conclusion that God was guiding through the deliberation. We we don't know. In fact, we don't even know how confident they were, if they were really sure or they just felt that actually, yes, they all did seem to be being guided and they were going to act on that. Uh, Because it could be the statement, the very emphatic statement that the Holy Spirit spoke is Luke's reflection in future years. They may not have been quite as confident at the time. We don't know. The fact is, though, they believed God had guided them and they obeyed. You may wonder why I've said so much about that. The reason I've said so much about it is it divides Christians And it just seems to me that when we come across things like this, we've just got to look at what the Bible says and not go beyond it. And if the Bible doesn't tell us, then let's not uh, divide on the basis of what we don't know. In fact, this passage isn't about guidance at all. If you read it, it's clear Luke isn't teaching us about how we're to be guided. Luke's teaching us about obedience. Let's, Let's... make sure we're clear about it. This was a church that sought God's will, came to an understanding of God's will by whatever means, and obeyed. And they obeyed even though it was at cost to themselves. We're only, we only know about five leaders, it says. Uh, that there were five of them. And they set apart two of those five to do service outside the immediate church context. Probably the two who were the best teachers and evangelists. I hope the lesson for us is clear. You see, it would have been very easy for the church in Antioch to have said, we can't lose them, we can't afford to do that. There's, there's, there's important stuff in the church that needs doing. But they didn't, because they recognised that God's mission went beyond the doors of their church, and that they needed to ensure that they, who God was blessing, were sending people out to bring that blessing 
to others. Um, just one thing in the margins, by the way. Do note that they sent Paul out. Uh, very often, I think we think of Paul as if he was some kind of freelance evangelist. He, he wasn't. First of all, the church in Jerusalem had acknowledged him as the apostle to the Gentiles. And here we see the church in Antioch acknowledging him as that and sending him out to the mission field. Let's move on. What happened next? Verse 4. The two of them, that's uh, uh, Barnabas and Paul, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was traveling with them as their helper. They went to the port that was quite close. It was a large port, quite close to Antioch, Seleucia, took the boat the 80 miles across to the east end of Cyprus, and starting in the east end, they went through the island proclaiming the gospel. And they established what became Paul's normal practice. They started speaking to the Jews in the synagogues. But the incident that Luke wants us to focus on wasn't primarily about the evangelization of the Jews. It was about a Gentile, Sergius Paulus, or Paulus. Now, Sergius Paulus was the proconsul of Cyprus, effectively the governor of uh, of Cyprus. And he had heard about Saul and Paul's speaking. Uh, Possibly they had made a bit of a stir and people were reporting it to him. We find very often later in Acts that uh, their preaching creates a stir, sometimes a riot, sometimes all sorts of things, and as a result, what they're preaching comes to the notice of the authorities. But but the interesting thing here is that Sergius Paulus was, was actually interested. We're told he was an intelligent man and was genuinely interested in this. But there was opposition. And the opposition came in the person of a Jew named Bar-Jesus, who was one of the attendants to the proconsul. And his objective was to stop Sergius Paulus becoming a Christian. Well, as you heard, Paul's reaction to that was pretty strong. Verse 9. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elemas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of all that's right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. And the result of that was dramatic. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Unsurprisingly, Sergius Paulus was impressed. Verse 12. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teachings about the Lord. Uh, Just note one thing there. The extraordinarily, extraordinary events with Bar-Jesus were the occasion of Sergius Paulus being converted. But do you note what he was actually amazed at? He was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. 
The miracle grabbed his attention, but it was the teaching about the Lord which was the crucial, crucial thing. And indeed, did you note what Paul and Barnabas were doing? They were proclaiming the word of God back in verse uh, 5. That was the critical thing that was going on. So what should we take away from this uh, remarkable incident involving uh, um, uh, Bar-Jesus? Oh, incidentally, I should have said Elimas is clearly the same chap. I, I've, I don't know why he's been given two names, but uh, Luke doubtless had his reasons. What should we take away from that? Well, first of all, clearly we should stand in awe of the sheer power of God who can do that sort of thing. We need to acknowledge that that is awesome, using the word in the way it was used 50 years ago, rather than the everyday sense that uh, we use it today, like Charlton were awesome last Sunday or something like that. No, this is God is truly awesome, all-powerful. I hope that point's obvious. The second point is perhaps less obvious because we shouldn't just be awestruck by that. We should be comforted by it, as I'm sure Paul and Barnabas and John Mark were comforted. You see, the early church had had a tough time. There had been opposition. There had been persecution. Stephen had been killed. He'd been stoned to death, and God had not intervened. There may have been other deaths. We don't know about them, but there may have been. What we do know is that a lot of people had fled. They'd left their homes. They'd left their country. Some of them had gone to Antioch. Some of them, incidentally, had gone to Cyprus. I forgot to mention earlier, Barnabas was from Cyprus. Uh, they'd fled. Their whole lives had been turned upside down. And you can imagine it was tough. But here is quite clearly the reassurance that God is all-powerful. God will prevail. And God is on the side of the church as it proclaims the gospel. And they needed to hear that. And they did hear it. And I'm sure that they were comforted. And we need to hear it as well. We get, not perhaps persecution at the moment, but, but we do get opposition. And we need to remember that that God who closed Elimas's eyes, who showed his power there, still has that same power and is still with those who proclaim his gospel. Now, I suspect some of you are thinking, yes, but maybe there's something more we should learn from this. Should we expect this kind of thing today? Now, again... Bible-believing Christians disagree on this subject. And I don't have time this evening to go into a long discussion of those disagreements. At risk of oversimplifying to the point of distortion, I think you can express it in the terms of a question. Put simply, did Paul record this on the basis that he is teaching us the kind of thing that we should expect 
when the gospel is preached? Or did he record it as something that is dramatic, albeit unusual, and from which we can learn, albeit it's not normative? Those are the the choices. Now, Christians I know and respect take both of those views, and of course there are many nuances of the views. Uh, And I don't have time to go into all of that. What I will say is that my own reading of the Bible is that the latter is the true position. That effectively, uh, Luke and indeed the other New Testament writers were telling us these things because we could learn from them, albeit they are not normative. They They should be expected to be unusual. Uh, In brief, uh, it seems to me that they they actually, if you read Acts and and the rest of the New Testament, they weren't actually that common even then. Um, uh, And there's no indication that the apostles expected them to be common then, uh, let alone today. I also think if you look at the Bible, you will find that the miraculous events in the Bible tend to, to be clustered around particular events. I'm not saying all of them were, but there are a huge number of miracles around the time of the Exodus and around the time of Elijah and Elisha, who in many ways prefigured Christ, and around the time of Christ and, to some extent, the apostles. Now, I stress again that many Christians who I respect would disagree with, with some of that, but I, I, I have to tell you that is how I read the, the evidence in the, in the Bible. But whichever view you take, please note, God is no less powerful today than he was when he did this in front of Sergius Paulus. The, the, the issue is not what God can do, the issue is what he wills be done. If God doesn't do this in your life or mine, it's not because he can't, it's because he doesn't wish to do so. And and we should be seeking to live our life in accordance with whatever he wills. But let's leave what I don't think is the lesson of the passage and go back to the key things that we should learn from this passage. I'm really aware that I haven't drawn out any one big single message from this passage. In fact, I've given a whole lot of of points, some of which are more, more important than others, and I hope that some of you here will find all of those points helpful. What I meant to say was some of you will find at least one of the points helpful. But I'd suggest in any event there are three of those points that we should all keep in our memory. Three points arising from the context of this passage and this passage. Repeating them, they are these. First of all, God acts in his time. And we shouldn't be anxious or alarmed if things don't happen as quickly as we want or or expect. Our job is faithfully to serve God and allow God to act when he wills. Viewed from 2,000 years on, he was acting, even though sometimes they may not have been able to see it. Point one. Point two, the church at Antioch sought God's will, understood that they had received it, 
and obeyed it, even at cost to themselves. We need to make sure that our church, St. John's, is a church like that, that seeks God's will, that seeks to, to understand what it is, and having understood what it is, puts it into practice, whether or not it costs us. And then finally, right back to the point we've just looking at, been looking at, we need to remember that God is powerful. He's in control and he's on the side of those who are proclaiming his gospel. Yes, sometimes he may do what he did here and dramatically deal with opposition. But on other occasions, I think the evidence of history and indeed the evidence of the book of Acts is that these are the majority. He, he, he chooses not to. He works instead through the opposition and through the persecution as he did in relation to the persecution following the stoning of Stephen, when he used that to send people out and begin the church, which actually uh, is the origin of of this church here today, a church of the Gentiles. We need to remember that whether he does one or the other is for him to decide. But he's there. He is powerful. I'd suggest that if we really memorise those things and if they really inform our thinking and our actions, then what we do as individuals and collectively as a church will be far more effective in the service of God. Amen.